You see, there is only one constant. One universal, it is the only real truth. Causality. Action, reaction. Cause and effect. Everything begins with choice. No, wrong. Choice is an illusion created between those with power and those without. Welcome back to Abstract, episode 73. We've got a postdoc in the house today, and we are in very, very good hands. We've got Alex Markham hailing all the way from Sweden, and they're ready to share their breadth and depth of knowledge on theoretical causality and machine learning, among other things, with us today. Alex, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. How's it going? It's good. Thanks. Thank you for being here. Much appreciated. Tell us a bit more about yourself, Alex. How'd you get here? Yeah, so thanks for having me on the show. I'm uh, currently doing my postdoc in Sweden, in Stockholm, in the Math of Data and AI group at KTH, Kotehoa, Royal Institute of Technology. My research focuses on developing new algorithms for learning causal models from data. So I think causal inference is especially appealing to more applied researchers because it offers an intuitive framework for reasoning about why stuff happens and how we can influence it to happen differently. Causal inference is especially interesting to me because it draws from so many different fields. For example, philosophy, cognitive science, methodology, as well as more computational and mathematical fields like machine learning, statistics, graph theory, algebraic geometry, combinatorics. Yeah. I love the interdisciplinary nature of your work. Yeah, it's one of the things that keeps me excited and interested in it. So. For sure. Yeah, I mean, Abstract is an interdisciplinary podcast, if you could if you could call it that, for sure. We've had lots of different uh, guests from different fields, also who often do interdisciplinary research. So I love that we've kind of already touched on so many different fields. Hard to know even where to begin, but I guess given that your focus is on is on causality, causal inference, maybe we can open up with kind of a definition of that. What is causal inference? So causal inference can mean a few different things. Um, sure. To me, what it means specifically is learning a causal model from data. And so the important part of the causal model that I'm interested in is the, the causal structure, knowing which variables cause which other variables. It can also mean slightly different things to other people. So they might be more interested in not the causal structure so much as specifically like the causal effect of a certain intervention. Interesting. So where can we apply this kind of causal structure? Is this something that we can apply, let's say, in maybe neuroscience, study the brain? Yeah, absolutely. So it's applicable in a lot of fields. I think I got into it by being interested in neuroscience and in neuroscience applications. My expertise is mostly in like theoretical causality and machine learning, but um, I am interested in applications in neuroscience, also genetics, and I try to make causal inference tools and methods that more applied researchers in neuroscience, for example, can use. Why would we need to necessarily use the tools and methods that you're creating? Like, what are you adding to the pre-existing uh, overwhelming field of statistical analysis in neuroscience? I wouldn't say that causal inference is necessarily like especially applicable to neuroscience compared to other fields. Mm -hmm. It's just when we try to explain stuff to each other just in you know everyday language, I think we tend to think about stuff causally. And for that reason, it would be especially interesting to have a model of you know the way the brain's working where it's not just the statistical oh this brain region is active and that's correlated with this other brain region being active but more something we can talk about sort of more intuitively more naturally that activity in this brain region was you know caused by this stimulus or the way this brain region was working 
was affected by a certain drug or a certain disease or damage or brain trauma or something like that. So you dropped the term correlation here. Yeah. <laughs> so how does how does correlation differ from what we've already spoken about, like causality? I think those two things are often used in the same breath, in, in the same sentence. How can we differentiate them? So if, if two variables are correlated, there's not necessarily like a direct causal relationship, but presumably the correlation is because of some causal relationship, whether it's a direct one from one to the other, the other way around, or an indirect one, or because there's some other thing you haven't measured that is causing both of these things and making them correlated. And so, yeah, the important thing is just that correlation is different from, from the causal relationship. You kind of painted this image in my mind of like looking at, at two children who look very similar because they're siblings. And then you're like, oh, well, they look very similar. Maybe one of them passed on their genetics to the other. <laughs> but of course, we know that a parent gave their genetics to both of those children. So there's this kind of external person who passed information into both. And that's why those two siblings look the same. Yeah, exactly. That's a good, a good analogy. Also, um, in graph theory, the kinds of graphs I work with, they're um, directed. So you've got like a node and then it has like an, a, an arrow pointing to other nodes. And in the graphs, we use this familial terminology. So we say a node is a parent of another node or a child or sibling. Ah. That kind of perfectly matches this. Two nodes, if they, they can be correlated because they have a common parent. Interesting. Okay. I'm, I'm tempted to just hop in to talk a bit more about graph theory, but I, I do want to maybe close off this, this neuroscience portion. Yeah. From what I know from my background in cognitive science, psychology, neuroscience, it's actually very difficult to analyze neuroimaging data. Could you maybe explain like what makes it so tough to do that? Yeah. I mean, there's, of course, different kinds of neuroimaging data. So there could be fMRI, which basically takes 3D pictures of the brain while you're thinking stuff. But it's taking pictures basically of where there's a high amount of like oxygen. And so blood carries oxygen. And so if a part of your brain is very active, blood goes there and it's got oxygen. And it's got to replenish some stuff that the neurons are using when they're firing. But there's, there's this big delay, you know, so if, if the a region in your brain is very active, it takes some time for the blood to get there. And so what we're actually mm -hmm. seeing from fMRI isn't brain activity directly. We're kind of looking at it through this, I don't know, like thick lens of we've got to see where the blood goes. And then so that's, for example, what one of the things that can make fMRI data difficult is that it's not a, a direct sort of view of neural activity. It's this indirect thing. And then furthermore, it's just huge amounts of data. It's time series data. So you've got something like Every second, you've got one of these big slices of thousands or millions of pixels, and you've got one of these every second. And I mean, think how long oh. it takes to do an experiment, 30 minutes or something. And so it's just a ton oh, of data. Okay. It's very noisy. Yeah, so it's just difficult to analyze. Okay. And then at the same time, you know, causal inference is also tough, just generally. It often takes a lot of assumptions, some of which are testable, others aren't testable. You just kind of hope they're true. And then when you combine these things, trying to do causal inference from neuroimaging data, it's just even tougher than any, either one of them are individually. It's interesting how you're saying that causal inference is tough because I think generally we have this intuition about causal inference, like when we look out into the world. Hopefully we don't see this too often, but let's say somebody pulls a trigger, a bullet travels, hits somebody else, and then they die. I think we're all pretty clear on the cause and effect here of what we just observed. So what right. makes causal inference difficult at the statistical level? The example you gave was a good example of how on the one hand, causal language and thinking about things causally is very intuitive to us. On the other hand, what makes it difficult at the statistical level is, you know, in your example, yeah, it was clear we could see it. But in another example, think about things when, there's, when they're not so immediate, when they're, they're farther apart. 
So imagine someone has, you know, a certain disease and they start taking a drug and then they get better. Did they get better because their immune system just did it on its own? Did they get better because the drug actually helped? Did they get better right. because they maybe moved locations and weren't exposed to the thing anymore? There's all sorts of different reasons the thing could have happened and it just gets more and more complicated. I got it. So time plays a role here. The further away in time two events are, the harder it is to tell what the causality is between them. Absolutely. And also it really depends on what you're measuring. So in your example, you, you sort of mentioned the two important things. The person being injured and the other person having like a, a gun firing a bullet. But if we didn't already know what to look for, maybe instead we're looking at something else, like the person being injured and then like the color of the person's shirt who injured them. Then maybe, yeah, there, we can cook up all sorts of scenarios where the color of the person's shirt who injured them is related to them injuring it. But maybe that doesn't always hold. Maybe we just happen to be looking at the wrong variables that aren't actually causally involved. Interesting. I guess I was taking for granted the fact that as human beings, we, we are these meaning-making machines. Right. And so we can look out into the world. And because we've learned over the course of our lives that certain things do cause other things, then we can tell. But I guess where this breaks down is when we're looking at trying to have computers do the same things that our brains do. Exactly. Because a computer doesn't necessarily have the same, well, it, it doesn't have the same life experience that we do. So it doesn't necessarily know that person pulls trigger, bullet goes out, hits other person, they, and then they die. And that's just, that's it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Even further than that, our intuition works in that case, but it maybe doesn't work if we're looking at the neural activity in, in the brain or something, or if we're looking at how different genes can regulate other genes. Or, you know, maybe it's a super complex causal system where you've got a thousand different variables interacting in complex ways. It's just kind of beyond the, the scope of what we can really see and meaningfully interpret. And so we, we do need computers or something to, to be able to grapple with these big complex systems. Uh-huh. And are we currently able to, like, fuse humans and computers in any meaningful way? So starting my PhD, one of the things that drove me to do my PhD where I did was my interest in what are called brain-computer interfaces, or BCI. Uh -huh. So in sure. brain-computer interfaces, basically you've got a person with a brain, and you, you record their neural activity. There's different ways you can do it. I guess one of the common ways is using electroencephalography, so EEG. You put this little cap on, and it's got a bunch of electrodes, and it records the electrical activity. Mm -hmm. So we get a bunch of data from doing this. And then we can use machine learning, we, statistical techniques, we can analyze this data, we can decode it. And by decoding this activity, we can use that to more directly interface with a computer or um, a machine, like a robotic arm or something. Like a kind of classic BCI like paradigm or setup would be that someone's got the EEG cap on and um, they're told to imagine moving. So the, the motor cortex where you like it's, it's active when you're moving, but also when you're imagining moving, even if, even if you don't move. It's kind of this big area on the sort of the top of your head. And so it's, it's easy to record. It's got big activity if you're just imagining moving. And so it's, it sort of makes it easy to do this, this decoding. For example, by decoding whether you're thinking about moving or not, or whether you're thinking about moving your left side of your body versus your right side of your body, you can decode this activity and then use that to, for example, move a mouse on a computer screen up and down or something like that. So... On the one hand, it maybe sounds very impressive or maybe scary or something to say, oh, we're, we're decoding thoughts. But it's, it's really not decoding thoughts. It's more just you learn to 
modulate your brain activity in a very big and easy to record way. And then we just say, oh, this activity means move a cursor up. This activity means move a cursor down. And then you can kind of learn to modulate your brain activity to control the cursor, for example. I see. Yeah, it's like it, there's a lot of abstraction going on here. We don't know what it's, right. what it's like for that person to imagine moving. We don't even know necessarily what they're imagining themselves doing when they're moving. We just want them to imagine themselves moving. And we code that as like, yes, move the cursor up. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Do we still have that kind of lag? Like you were saying with like fMRI, for example, we have like a, a big lag between like the movement of the oxygen through the brain and the actual activity. If I want to move a cursor up on the screen and I've got this EEG cap on, if I think about like running, am I going to see that cursor move almost instantaneously, a second later, a minute later? What's the time? Yeah, time so that's there? pretty quick. So with, with EEG, electrical activity, it's kind of more directly related to neural activity. Like in a sense, you know, neurons, I mean, they're, they're basically like chemical electrical generators. So measuring the electrical activity is more direct. There's not as much of a lag compared to measuring blood oxygen level. So it's more direct. I would think maybe less than a second if you've got a good kind of pipeline set up to decode it and everything. Okay, but just to get maybe a bit of a better idea of like this whole brain-computer interface thing. So... Hmm. It, it seems like the machine is kind of picking up on some brain activity, then that brain activity controls something else. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of like advanced prosthetics, mm -hmm. where like you, you have some kind of artificial arm or hand, and then you can use brain signals, or even you can use like nerve endings mm -hmm. in, in your arm to control the movement of fingers and stuff like that. Is, is that the same yeah. kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. So for more, this more fine-grained movement to be able to do something like move an arm. So an arm's more complex, you know, you've got your different joints, uh, maybe an elbow joint, a shoulder joint, you've got, you can like rotate it. So in a sense, it's, it's more complex than yes, no, or moving a cursor in right. one of two directions. And so it is possible, but for example, then because it's more complicated, it's easier to do it when you've got more detailed measurements. So an EEG cap is nice because you can just slip it on, put some gel on so it's conductive and then or and you can take it off but to get this more fine measurements needed for very detailed movements you need an in-brain implant so you have to actually implant the electrodes you know uh, you have to open up a, a skull like it requires serious surgery and so um, oh, wow. that makes it easier maybe it's possible to have robotic arm movement without doing that but sort of best case for for that kind of thing is that you can do in-brain implants which is one of the things that makes it difficult to do bci research so I'm just curious to know, I think this is like kind of uh, sci-fi here, but like if we can tap into brain activity to control something external, do you think we could flip that relationship? Could we have something external control our brain? Like it makes me think of the Matrix. There's this scene where I think Neo has to like fly a, a helicopter or something and he just like downloads the knowledge of being able to fly a helicopter. Yeah. Is there any way that we can input information to then guide neuronal activity? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess it depends on the neural activity. So we can certainly stimulate the brain in a variety of ways already. You can just have an electrical current running across your brain, and that's a kind of stimulation. But just an electrical current running, all that maybe does, you can think of it as like slightly maybe enhancing your mood or something, or maybe it makes you slightly more focused, or maybe it, it's just these very sure. light kind of general modulations or something. We can also stimulate at a more local level, like a, a group of neurons, but one of the things, I guess, about, you know, the way the brain is organized is it's very heavily redundant. And so in that sense, stimulating one group of neurons isn't enough to make you do something because there's kind of more to a complex movement, like moving your arm, than individual things. And so it's pretty 
hard to imagine how any time in the foreseeable future we would have something like where we upload a thought or upload a program to, to be able to do something. Okay. I'll go cry myself to sleep after this. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to be flying any helicopters in the near future. <laughs> okay, cool. So I, I'm glad. Let's, let's maybe kind of wrap up this whole like brain side of things. <laughs> We've got the neuroscience, the brain-computer interface. We've already spoken about correlation, causality, different variables and, and how they all relate together. So there's a lot of information. So let's maybe dial it back into this causality aspect of our discussion. <laughs> so when we're looking at a pair of variables or even a group, how do we know that we're looking at a causal relationship? What are the telltale signs? There's two different ways you could get those signs. Here it helps to go into causality, like what is a, a causal relationship? First, of course, I'll go back to this, this common saying that a lot of people are familiar with. Correlation does not imply causation. Just because two variables or a group of variables are correlated, that doesn't mean there's a direct causal relationship from one to the other. But if the correlation is like genuine and not from some statistical error, then it's because of some underlying causal relationship. Whether it's a direct one or an indirect one or some other thing causing both of those things. So the, the point of all this is that the language, if you think about probability and statistics as this like formal language, on its own, it's not descriptive enough to fully describe causal relationships because it talks about things in terms of dependence and independence, correlation and being uncorrelated. But there's, there's kind of more to a, a direct causal relationship than, than these things. So hmm. when, we, when we do causal inference kind of formally, what that means is that we extend the language of probability. And so we add in a do operator. Do is in action, I, I do something. So what this allows us to do is not only can we talk about passive, what happened, but we can say now, what happens if we do something? And so us doing something, clearly that's, that's a cause. And then we can observe the effects of it. By adding in this operator, by extending the, the formal language of probability and statistics, we can now better describe causal relationships. So hold on a second. <laughs> probability <laughs> and statistics don't account for or describe human action. I mean, not fully. I mean, they describe it statistically, but not causally. I mean, exactly going back to the phrase, correlation does not imply causation. Just because I know two different actions are correlated on its own, there's not any purely statistical analysis I can do that tells me what the causal relationship between them is. We have to do something more. We have to have this idea of what causality means. How can we define it formally? How is it related to the formal language of probability and statistics? Mm. Okay. Now I have an understanding of what the limitation of probability and statistics are. It doesn't go as far as causality. That's where you come in. Right. And one maybe your, obvious yeah. way to see that is that correlation, it's a symmetric relationship. If a variable A is correlated with a variable B, B is correlated with A. In the same way. Yeah. I mean, like in terms of how it's defined, like mathematically correlation, it just is a symmetric relationship. Um, uh -huh. So if two things are correlated, two things are correlated. But causality, of course, it's, it's, it's non-symmetric. So... A causes B, that doesn't mean that B causes A. Like these are different statements. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of one just... Okay, I like this. Yeah, easy example to see. The, these at least can't be the, the same thing. We have to have some some way of separating, well, if, if A and B are correlated, how do I know which direction the causality is or whether there's some other thing causing both of them? Right, so when you say like uh, that correlation is symmetric, you mean it's like non-directed. Like it's yeah, not... Yeah, yeah. There's no direction there. Right, exactly. Okay, so... This is great. Just to pull us back, what are the telltale signs that we're looking at an actual causal relationship? Right. So like I said, they're kind of like two, two different kinds of telltale signs. If we say causality 
it's an extension of probability and statistics with this do operator, then causation, causality, the kind of slogan for it would be that there's no causation without manipulation. So if you can't at least hypothetically intervene on a variable, do something, then it's not really the kind of variable that it makes sense to talk about causally. Could we get an example of that? Like what would be a variable that we cannot intervene on? I mean, maybe like familial, like strict, like biological familial relationships, you know, how would you make me the child of someone else? You know, kind of what it means to be me, like part of what defines that presumably is like that I have certain parents and a certain upbringing. And so like to intervene on who my parent was maybe isn't as meaningful as like intervening on whether I'm taking a certain drug for a certain disease. I see. So even though like you are you, the properties of Alex Markham, only certain properties can be manipulated. Not like the relationship you have to your biological parents, but the kinds of drugs that are going through your system. Yeah, yeah. I guess this distinction is helpful for when can we apply causal modeling? When does it make sense to? And it maybe doesn't make sense to try to find a causal model between variables that don't really make sense causally as something that could be intervened on. We'll let that marinate. <laughs> so the point is... Um, this kind of slogan, no causation without manipulation. On the one hand, it means, yeah, we can only talk about causality for like certain kinds of variables. On the other hand, it gives a hint at how we can find the causal relationship. So if we actually do an experiment, probably a lot of people are familiar with this idea of a randomized controlled experiment. The classic example would be, you know, if there's some disease and I want to know if this, this drug that's been developed treats that disease. We randomize it, we get 20 people, or maybe a lot more, uh, hopefully a lot more, um, mm -hmm. people kind of with a disease. We randomly pick some to give a, a placebo, and we randomly pick the others to give the actual drug. This kind of experiment is set up to help you determine whether there's a causal relationship between that drug and the outcome of the disease. If you have that kind of experiment and you're looking at data from that, in those cases, if there's a correlation between taking the drug and having a positive outcome, like recovering from the disease, then that would be a sign that there's a causal relationship because of how the experiment's set up. You randomly picked who gets the drug, who doesn't. And the sort of randomly picking is important because it, it rules out other possible causes or they kind of all balance out. Maybe you have one person who gets better, who took the drug, but also gets better just because they would have anyway. But maybe you have another person who doesn't get better even though they took the drug. If you have a, a large enough kind of sample, this randomizing helps rule out all causes except the one thing you're changing, which is who gets the drug and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. And maybe more than 20 people would be helpful for that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. Okay, excellent. So let's, let's maybe talk a bit about the like, mathematical underpinning of the research that you're doing. You dropped a couple yeah. of big words in your introduction, like uh, machine learning and graph theory and all this stuff. So we haven't had a chance yet to dive into that. Yeah, how does machine learning figure into this? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, machine learning, it's, it's just basically a way of learning a model given some data and that model that you learn helps you address a certain question or helps you kind of with some goal. So okay. kind of the classic setup is you've got some data, you've got something in mind that you want to do with the data. What kind of model do you want to learn? Do you want to learn questions that help you say, decide what is in the image that you're looking at? Or do you want a model that helps you kind of split up your images into different ones that are like similar in their own way? Depending on your goal, you can pick a machine learning algorithm that learns a model from the data that helps you with your goal, with your question. This data doesn't just have to be pictures, though. 
No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, that was just an example. Sure. Could it be audio? Could it be just like text? Anything? Yeah. I mean, anything that you can quantify in a way that you can give it to a computer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So machine learning is just learning a model from data that helps you address a certain goal. And so in terms of causal inference, in a sense, causal inference, I mean, you can think about it's just a, a kind of machine learning. It's just a, a class of machine learning algorithms. What? This whole time, causal inference has just been machine learning algorithm? <laughs> yeah, or at least uh, my, my focus on it. So it's sort of a, a framework or a, a guiding way of making machine learning methods where the models you learn are causal models and not just some statistical model or some other model. Do you ever go nuts because your research is so abstract? Uh, <laughs> like you wake up in the morning and you're like, what am I doing again? <laughs> No, but I think maybe sometimes if I'm having to explain it to people, then it makes me think, oh, wow, like, what am I doing? Because it's it's so tough to, to explain all of it. I never know where to start. It's tough. It's tough. I, I feel like this whole episode so far has been setting up, like, the foundation. We're just undergirding the last 60 seconds of our discussion, which is going to be diving into your actual research, because it's got all these different components and elements in it. Yeah. So I guess we, we can maybe even just hop there. What's the question that you're putting into your machine learning model to me the question is always how are all of these variables causally related to each other and how do we visualize that like how do we actually answer that question yeah a while ago now i said there were kind of two kinds of telltale signs of a causal relationship one of them that we talked about was when you can do experiments when you can do interventions the other kind the kind i'm more interested in is if you have certain patterns of dependence or independence among the variables and so Okay. You can think that this, for example, we, we do a bunch of statistical tests. So we measure the correlation of a bunch of variables. We use this to estimate which variables are like independent of which others. And then we look for patterns in these independence statements. And then certain patterns tell us there are certain causal relationships. So, for example, say we're, we're growing some plants. Mm -hmm. And we can add water or we can like add fertilizer. So we've got these three variables. We've got like the water... We've got the fertilizer and we've got the, the growth of the plant. Okay. If we just kind of, if we give it water whenever it looks like it needs water and we give it fertilizer every week, say, then what we'll see is that statistically, like probabilistically, the fertilizer and the water, they're independent. There's, there's no correlation between how much fertilizer is given and how much water is given. But we would see that the water and the plant growth are correlated. And also we would see that the plant growth and the fertilizer correlated and so mm -hmm. this pattern of dependence and independence between these three variables tells us that it has to be that the water causes the plant growth and the fertilizer causes the plant growth but that the fertilizer and the water are, are independent so in terms of math what this looks like is that we would make a directed graph and so we would have a graph with these three nodes one for each variable so one for water one variable for fertilizer and one variable for plant growth and then the graph would be that we draw these directed edges, these arrows. So an arrow from water to plant growth, an arrow from fertilizer to plant growth. And that would be our little causal model. So the, the dependence pattern that we found means that we have this, this causal structure. So this graph, this, this, this fits under the umbrella of graph theory in mathematics? Yeah. And yeah. this graph is not like a histogram. It isn't like a bar chart. This is... No. It's more... What does it look like? Does this more look like, like a triangle? In our case, we had three points. And so it would be kind of like a triangle, but without one side. 
and then the two edges would be directed into each other. So we call this like a collider. You've got two edges pointing to each other. More generally, a graph is just a set of variables and then a set of arrows between variables. So that's all a graph is in the, the kinds of graphs that I deal with. And then because they're causal ones, they're like acyclic. So we don't have that the water causes the plant growth, causes the fertilizer, causes the water, because then you get this like causal cycle. And that's maybe not how we think about <laughs> causality. Uh, I'm trying to imagine a world in which you get these cyclic relationships. I assume that we see cyclic. I mean, we have cycles in, in the world. We have like cycles of... Like yeah breathing so, and we have cycles of like the water cycle and the oceans and the clouds like right. cycles exist out there but just not not everywhere so this is one of the challenges of like time series data and causal analysis in time series data like fmri if we kind of collapse the time series and just want one model of all of it it looks like there are cycles but if you then like extend it out through time then you don't get cycles you just get these directed causal relationships nice callback <laughs> yeah <laughs> to fmri there okay so so these graphs you're talking about you said they are directed they are not cyclic right okay what else are these directed non-cyclic graphs good for you, you were saying graphs in general describe just relationships between variables could you give me a couple of examples of where we see these kinds of non-cyclic directed graphs yeah so like these we call them like dags directed acyclic graphs so these dags Oh, great. We use these to, like, kind of this gives you a causal model if you satisfy certain assumptions. And so then what the causal inference algorithms that I work with look like is they take some data and then they output one of these DAGs. And then this DAG encodes, on the one hand, all of the, the causal relationships, but it also encodes the probabilistic, the statistical relationships. And so when you look at a DAG, when you look at one of these causal models, you, of course, see the causal relationships, but you can also see the statistical relationships and the, the probabilistic ones very directly. Wow. The DAGs are the superstars. They're yeah, pulling it yeah. all together. <laughs> yeah. DAGs for days. Very cool. Okay. So these directed acyclic graphs, which show the re directional relationships between variables, right. which also show us causality and the statistical probabilistic relationships between things. Yeah. This, is the be -all. this sounds like the be-all and end-all of science. Is everybody using these? Um, no, I mean, I think more people should be using them, but of course they have their limitations. So, um, uh -huh. this is why Give me the bad I, news. I guess, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, causal inference is just, it, it's difficult. So much can go wrong. So if you haven't actually measured all of the appropriate causal variables, then it might be that you, you know, there's a correlation between two variables. So, you know, there's maybe an edge, but you, you can't direct it because you don't have the variable that causes both of them. So you just are kind of stuck. And so then we can also use other kinds of graphs and then it gets much more complicated. Instead of DAGs, you've got these graphs with five different edge types and you can't actually learn one graph in particular. You rather learn like a set of graphs that are all equivalent in some way. And so it gets really messy when some of the assumptions start getting violated. And in practice, they often get violated. So it, it makes causal inference very tough. That's science. Sometimes you got to violate yeah. assumptions. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Intense. Very intense. This was quite something. Our discussion today i'm gonna to have to make heads and tails heads or tails heads <laughs> does heads cause tails i don't even know anymore um <laughs> i don't think there's a causal relationship between uh between coin flips but we can maybe get into that at a different point down the line um yeah. i would feel bad if we didn't just quickly summarize and apply everything we just spoke about to your specific research i know we've kind of been touching on it here and there but is there anything that you feel like we've missed in terms of 
synthesizing your current postdoctoral research. Yeah, so analogously to how I talked about how we can use these graphs, these DAGs, to reason about causality, we can also use other areas of math. So we can represent these causal models, these DAGs, as points in a certain space, and then we can look at the geometric properties of that space and of how different points in that space are related to each other. We can look at the algebraic properties of that space. So we can use all these different tools for math. And so kind of my research is really on both finding causal interpretations for like existing mathematical theorems and results, and also making new mathematical results that are interesting because of the causal interpretations they, they allow. And so I really that's the focus of my research generally, but also especially my, my postdoc here right now in, in the math department. I just want to quickly ask something about what you said about this space of DAGs. So in the DAG, we have nodes, which are the variables, and then we have the edges connecting them, which have directions. Right. But then now you're saying the entire graph that is that DAG, that now gets shrunk down into a single point in a larger hyperdimensional cloud of DAGs, which do yeah. they, they also have like causality between the DAGs? Like, is this like DAGception? So not necessarily between the DAGs, but you've, you can think about like causal inference. You could describe it, for example, as moving between points in this space of DAGs. And um, you've got to optimize so that you, you go to the best DAG, the DAG that kind of best fits the data. But yeah, how you said we can kind of shrink this big DAG down to one point in the space of all possible models. Can we then shrink the space of all possible models down to a point and then put it into a hyperspace of possible models? Please tell me yes. Uh, in, a, in a sense, and then maybe you're looking at different, different model parameters. So maybe you're looking at different numbers of variables in your DAG, or you're looking at different... Yeah, so uh, <laughs> it can get very, very um, mathematically abstract. Oh, God. I'm... Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm excited to wake up tomorrow and make heads and tails of this <laughs> and re-listen to this discussion. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much, Alex, for dishing out knowledge on graph theory, machine learning, causality, correlation, brain-computer interfaces, neuroscience, brain imaging. I'm sure I'm missing some stuff here. We've pretty much covered <laughs> it all. This is a one-stop shop. So yeah. thank you very much for coming. What a treat. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. It was nice uh, talking with you. Well, have an awesome rest of your day, and thanks so much. Take care. Causality. There is no escape from it. We are forever slaves to it. Our only hope, our only peace is to understand it, to understand the why. Why is what separates us from them.